On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 141, Clint Smith warns us of the danger of silence. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, this is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I'm excited today to be welcoming Clint Smith to the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Clint is a writer and doctoral candidate at Harvard University, and he's received fellowships from Cave Canem, the Kalu Creative Writing Workshop, and the National Science Foundation. He's a 2014 National Poetry Slam champion and was a speaker at the 2015 TED Conference. His writing has been published in The New Yorker, The American Poetry Review, The Guardian, Boston Review, Harvard, Educational Review, and elsewhere. He's the author of Counting Descent and was born and raised in New Orleans. Clint, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so honored that you took a risk on someone you have no idea <laughs> who I am to come talk on this show and absolutely loved watching your TED Talks and reading your poetry. And and speaking of your book, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about Counting Descent, how you decided to write it. And I know actually you even said you're willing to read one of them for us. Yeah. So Counting Descent is my first collection of poetry. Uh, it was published in September 2000. 16 and and it's been an incredible experience to kind of go around the country and share the work with with people and and you know for me i i sort of am in an interesting place because i exist as sort of uh, a social scientist and and an artist and a writer and and so and a researcher and so i'm wearing these multiple hats uh and i think part of what this book represents is this sort of artistic manifestation of the, a lot of the ideas I've been thinking about over the course of the last three years. And so I began graduate school at Harvard uh, the same week that Mike Brown was killed. And so it's impossible for me to disentangle my sort of scholarly project from my sort of political recalibration and reorientation. I think, as it's been the case for many of us, the last three, four, five years have forced us to sort of reconsider the ways in which we may have assumed or thought uh, that certain institutions worked in the United States. And and for me, uh, that has coincided with a sort of intellectual project of sitting in the library for, you know, 16 hours a day, reading about the history of racial inequality in the United States and becoming uh, privy to a lot of sort of historical and empirical facts that I was not previously aware of that have fundamentally recalibrated the way I understand inequality in the United States. And so poetry for me has always been the means by which I sort of process who I am in the broader context of the world. And this book was sort of written over the course of the first two years of graduate school, not necessarily formally aligned to any scholarly project with school, but uh, again, very much shaped by those ideas and, and often shaped by me procrastinating on my <laughs> statistics somewhere. Um, but the book is sort of, you know, I tell people that it is wrestling with what is the the marathon of cognitive dissonance 
that it is to grow up as a young black person in this country? And how does one uh, reconcile that ever-present tension between growing up in a home in which you feel loved, affirmed, and celebrated, and then going out into a world in which you are constantly rendered a caricature of fear? Uh, and how does one hold those sort of complicated dualities at once and recognize that neither is singularly definitive of of one's experience, but both are important, both the, the joy that, that a community experiences and the violence that it is subjected to. Uh, and so the book is kind of moving back and forth between those spaces. And so I'll read a poem from the book called What the Cicada Said to the Black Boy. It's a, one of several poems in which I have these sort of uh, non-human or non-living or inanimate objects speaking to um, black boys in the same vein that my parents did, right? And so part of what I'm thinking about in the book is the ways in which black parents have to categorically different, raise their children in different ways than, than their white counterparts in an effort to make sure that their children are safe. And, you know, for me, I grew up in a very mixed race, mixed income community. I had black friends, white friends, Asian friends. It was wonderful. It was like the Disney Channel. And my dad would always say, I really appreciate and love that you have such a diverse group of friends. I love that you have such a beautifully reflective community of, of the American tapestry. But part of what you have to understand is that the implications for the decisions that you make might be very different for you than they are for your other friends. When you're a kid, you don't understand that. You're just kind of like, you're the mean dad, you're the strict dad. Why can't you be more like Tommy's dad? And it's not until something like Tamir Rice happens, the young boy who was killed, the 12-year-old boy who was killed in Cleveland, Ohio, for playing with a toy gun in a park in an open carry state when no one else was around him. So obviously layers and layers of, of issues of that case. And that's all to say that I, I was thinking a lot about the the fear that, that black parents sort of carry with them and, and then the ways in which that fear shapes the sort of pedagogy of their parenting. And so as a sort of artistic endeavor, I imagine what these other objects might say in, in the sort of proverbial talk to um, young black boys. And this is one of those poems. What the cicada said to the black boy. I've seen what they make of you. How they render you a multiplicity of mistakes. They have undone me as well. Pulled back my shell and feasted on my flesh. Claimed it was for their survival. And they wonder why I only show my face every 17 years, but you, you're lucky if they let you live that long. I could teach you some things, you know. I've been playing this game since before you knew what breath was. This here is prehistoric. Why you think we fly? Why you think we roll in packs? You think these swarms are for the fun of it? I would tell you that you don't roll deep enough. But every time you swarm, they shoot. Get you some wings, son. Get you some wings. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. It's I've read them, and yet it's not anywhere near as powerful as getting to hear you read them and the cadence in your voice. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. One of the things I know that you've had the opportunity to do in your life is give a couple of TED Talks. And mm. a lot of people are curious about what that looks like and how that does or doesn't develop you as a presenter. Does it change your mind about what effective influence looks like in a a means of some sort of presentation like that. So I wonder if you would share a little bit about your experience and if anything changed your mind about how we might better influence on a stage like that. Yeah. So, so my TED experience is interesting 
and so I, I should back up before I get to to how it the experience itself. So I I got the opportunity because I applied to do a TEDx TEDx Manhattan in two thousand and. 13, I believe. And it was about food justice. And I had written a poem that was about uh, food deserts in the community where I taught. So I taught uh, high school English in Prince George's County, Maryland. Uh, in Prince George's County, Maryland, it's classified by the USDA as a food desert. And, and for those who don't know, food deserts are specific locales or regions in which there is not access to healthy foods or you know fruits and vegetables and things like that. The spaces that would present you know, a family with the opportunity for a well-balanced diet. And I began thinking about that and thinking about the ways in which that was influencing what was happening uh, with my students' academic ability, right? Because so often what happens in the context of education, specifically K-12 education, is that we tend to speak of it as if it exists in this silo apart from the rest of the socio-political realities that affect our students' lives, right? And so we speak of education as if it's not impacted by housing segregation, as if it's not impacted by mass incarceration, as if it's not impacted by food insecurity, as if it's not impacted by immigration policy, and the myriad of things that affect all of our young people's lives every single day. And so food insecurity is one of the things that I began to think about. And I presented a TED Talk in March of 2014 on that phenomenon. And it did pretty well. It didn't go viral online or anything, but, but it was an exciting, incredible opportunity. Uh, and then somebody sent me an opportunity to apply for a TED Salon event. And so a TED Salon is a sort of thing where they present it to you as a sort of speaker search. And they say these are sort of mini talks, four to six minutes in which you go and present an idea in a, in a sort of quicker format than the traditional maybe 18 minute TED talk that is, is more popular. Mm -hmm. And then those who have participated in that event might be invited to participate in the sort of larger TED event. So I went and didn't anticipate that anything would be put online. Uh, and I shared a poem that was thinking about this idea of silence and thinking about what it meant to be silent uh, with regard to injustices that you maybe didn't directly or don't directly experience yourself. And that was sort of catalyzed by an anti-bullying initiative that we had at my school. And we were, you know, telling students that it was essential that they should speak up when they saw somebody being verbally or physically abused, that they shouldn't be silent when, when these things were happening. And I was telling my students this. I had this sort of moment where I realized that I was asking my students to do something that I wasn't always following through upon myself. Mm -hmm. And that there were many times in my own life when, when I was failing to speak up on behalf of issues that didn't directly affect me. And, and that caused me a deep amount of, of shame and sort of served as catalyst to a lot of self-reflection about what does it look like to be more proactive in being the sort of person that I'm asking my students to be. And so I wrote this poem uh, kind of reflecting on that and as a means to hold myself accountable. I shared the poem and, and then sort of contextualized the poem. And, and I thought it went well. I got off stage and I was like, well, that was exciting. What a great opportunity. And that was July of 2014. About a month later, they emailed me and they said, we're going to put your TED Talk up on TED.com in about 72 hours. Please prepare your online presence. And I was like, <laughs> I don't have an online presence. Uh, and so I quickly made uh, a website. I had a Twitter, but I don't think I tweeted for like two years. Oh, I gosh. maybe tweeted. I said, racism is bad. I just, you know, tweeted something. Uh, and uh, and in 72 hours, they, they put the the talk up. And, oh, and again, this, so it was a Fascinating week um, because the same week the talk went up is the same week Mike Brown was killed. 
is the same week that I began graduate school. And so life, both on a micro and macro level, was changing very quickly. Uh, but I think the talk, in part, uh, about the danger of silence went viral in the way that it did because it also went online in a sort of political moment in which people were thinking about what is the what is their role in what is clearly becoming a sort of burgeoning uh, social movement and, and what is one's responsibility in the context of uh, their own lives to, in participating in, in such a movement. And so uh, that talk kind of took on a life of its own. And funnily enough, in October, I sent an email to Ted. And, and by this time, that the danger of silence had gotten you know, well over like a million, a million and a half views. I sort of emailed Ted and I said, hey, I hope you all are well. You know, I was just emailing to see if there were some tickets available to come to the TED conference. Uh, it's at the same time as my spring break from graduate school. It would be great. And as a former speaker, I was wondering if there might be some sort of discount. Because um, the thing about TED is that, it, you know, tickets are are absurd. I mean, they, they're almost $10,000 to, yeah. to attend the conference. And that's not including uh, flights and hotels. And so I was clearly as a graduate student, I couldn't afford that. But my mom always taught me that a closed mouth never gets fed. And so I was, you know, procrastinating again, probably on statistics homework. And I just sent an email and then they responded and they were like, actually, Clint, your talk's done really well. And we would love if you came and we'll uh, give you a ticket for free. And I was like, well, that's amazing. And then a few weeks later, they emailed me and they said, actually, would you consider speaking at uh, TEDU, which was a sort of TED side event um, for audience members to do a sort of mini talk on something that's uh of interest to them. And this was right after Tamir Rice was killed. And so I was thinking a lot about um, kind of what you alluded to before. What is the, the sort of role and responsibility of someone given access to, to a platform of potential power, potential influence? And I, I thought a lot about what sorts of things I might be able to, to say and what sort of things in that, again, sort of like social and political moment needed to be said that weren't being said in spaces like Ted. So it's not that these things weren't being said at all, because there are many activists and organizers and, and writers and thinkers and journalists who are talking about these things all the time. The question is, in which spaces are these conversations happening and in which spaces are they not? And so I responded <clears throat> and I, I said, thank you so much for inviting me. I would like to talk about how black parents have to raise their children in categorically different ways than white parents just to make sure that they stay alive. Thank you so much. And I didn't hear back from them for, for about a month. And I was like, well, you know, I, I, maybe that was not what they were <laughs> expecting. Then I did hear back from them and they said, actually, we think that's really important and we want to put you on the main stage and you'll speak right after Monica Lewinsky. And so I went and I went to the TED conference and shared what would become the TED talk, how to raise a black son in America, uh, which I should also say, uh, TED comes up with the headlines and titles for all of these. That is not, you know, was not my name for, for the talk or for the poem, but I shared that. And, and again, I think it was, you know, unfortunately, speaking to a phenomenon that was especially relevant in that in that moment. And that that talk also got a lot of traction. So, you know, TED has been an incredible opportunity for me to, to share my ideas with an audience far beyond anything I could have ever imagined. You know, I have people who email me from all across the world sending feedback or, or thanks or uh, having questions that are sort of stemming from the talk. And it was an experience that I'm incredibly grateful for. Uh, I'm, I'm sad that I 
had to and that we continue to have to write and talk about the things that I sort of wrote about in, in both of those pieces. But again, I think, you know, Nina Simone, a, a great and incredible black artist, always said that the artist's responsibility is to reflect the times, right? And so I think you see that across the board and that the, the role and responsibility of an artist is not to shy away from that, which is political, but to, to engage it head on, to engage it directly. And, and my hope is that the, the talks for some people, maybe for people who look like me or who grew up like me, for that, that those poems and those talks make them feel seen. Um, and, and for those who, who grew up in a very different context, that maybe it's illuminating and conveys something about the nature of how, even though we maybe all grow up in the same world, in the same country, maybe even attend the same school, as a result of different you know, phenotypical facets of our identity, uh, we can experience the same world very differently. And so it, it's been fascinating and heartening to see much of the feedback from it. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. And my hope is that anyone who gets an opportunity to uh, have a platform such as TED or, or something like that just thinks about what is it that needs to be said in that moment? What is something you can say that is going to speak to your values, that is going to um, reflect your personal and political commitments? And I think if you can stay true to that rather than writing the sort of talk or writing the sort of speech or article that you think people want to hear and instead writing the thing that you think is, is necessary for mm -hmm. people to hear, then I, I don't think you'll ever be disappointed in yourself. I was thinking about that there have been a number of syllabi that have been posted online for people to peruse. And sometimes they are fictitious ones, like I saw one recently, and I'll put a link in the show notes to it, of a class to fight against bullshit. And, so there just, and I thought, man, I want to take this class. I don't, I don't think it exists, but it was proposed as a possible one unit class, but the, whoever was the author of it hadn't actually taught this class anywhere. And there are a number of people trying to fight against a lack of digital literacy and writing some syllabi around that. And so I think so much about what you share about in your work in your talks and your poetry. And one of the things really struck me in a both a negative and a positive way all at the same time, a negative as in telling myself, I, I know that I do this sometimes. I know that I'm weak in this area. You say, just because you watched one episode of The Wire doesn't mean you know a thing about my kids. Mm. And in my head, I was laughing because I was thinking, but wait, I watched every season, every episode. I, I must, you know, and of course, I'm, I, that's why you do your work is to, to bend us inside and to challenge us and stretch us. And I wonder if you might share some thoughts for people who want so much to be advocates and for whom your message of not being silent or the danger of silence. But sometimes I think that as advocates, what we very much should be is silence. I, I heard a wonderful talk from, which I could, darn it if I can't remember the guy's name, but I will put a link in the show notes to it. But he hosts a very popular storytelling podcast. He's African-American. And I, I went to see him at a podcasting conference and he was talking about his anger when people hear something such as poetry like you just read or someone shares this phenomenal story of 
their lives. And then whoever the interviewer is or, or whoever is tr- is opening the opportunity for them to tell their story starts to then contextualize it for them. Well, what you meant here and what you said here. And he's like, no, you, no, you don't, you do not have the right to do that. You've taken away their story. So I, I wrestle with this and I wonder if you have any feedback on how we might think about this. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think that there's a difference between a sort of silence of complicity and then a silence of listening. And I think it's important that we sort of uh, differentiate and disentangle the two. I mean, I think it is absolutely essential. You know, it's part of what I always talk about is, and, and Kimberly Crenshaw writes a lot about this. She's a scholar who coined the term intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about the ways in which the different parts of our identity exist as oppressed and oppressor, right? And so in each of us, that we are carrying different elements and facets of who we are. And in the sort of socio-historical context of the world, each of those things represent a group that is marginalized or a group that has done the marginalizing. And so within me, you know, I, as a black American, I'm a part of a group that has been historically marginalized and historically oppressed. As a man, I am certainly a part of a group that has historically and in a contemporary context does the oppressing because patriarchy and sexism are profound operating functions of the way that the world works. And it is essential for me to recognize those and to recognize the ways in which the how I navigate the world as a man might necessitate that I maybe step back sometimes and that I'm not taking up space that is so often taken up by men that I don't think that my voice or fall, you know, unconsciously come to believe that my voice is more legitimate or more worthy of being heard, whether that's you sitting in a meeting or whether that's you engaging in a conversation with someone. And as a black person, maybe that means that I need to think about what it means for my voice to be heard more explicitly than one might otherwise consider because of the historical nature of whose voices have been included or whose voices have been stifled and flattened. And and that's hard, right? And I think that that depends so much on the context of the moment. And I think there are moments in which we need to think about the ways in which our identities shape whether or not we should be speaking or or listening. And I think in this political moment that we're entering, you know, I mentioned before holding these sort of complicated dualities together. I think we are going to need the skills of both empathy and resistance more than ever. And recognizing that both of those things can be held at once. And, you know, for me, recognizing that there is a large swath of people in this country who voted in a way that is fundamentally difficult for me to come to terms with. And that for me is aligned with a very specific set of values in my mind that run counter to any notion of the type of world or the type of country I want to live in. I don't think that that in and of itself means that you don't continue to seek to understand why someone makes the sets of decisions that they do. And that doesn't mean that you endorse those decisions. That doesn't mean you're acquiescing to those decisions. That doesn't mean one is seemingly like compromising their political or ideological integrity. But but I think that the act of empathy and the act of listening, which is going to be necessary going both ways, is going to be more important now than ever. And in my mind, that is not mutually exclusive from acts of resistance, acts of, of a political resistance, of social resistance, and refusing to, again, sort of, of acquiesce to, to a type of world that isn't misaligned with uh, the things that we, we value and care about. 
There are four things that you write on the board as you start each of your classes. Read critically, write consciously, speak clearly, and tell your truth. Would you share a bit about why you do that and and how that's sort of transformed to talk back to you as well to teach yourself? Yeah, so I'm a someone who takes history very seriously, and I'm a big sort of history buff, and I think that exists both in my artistic work and my scholarly work and in my, my pedagogical my practice as well. And so I'm interested in this idea of like social contracts that like bind communities together. I mean, you think about the, the Constitution as the sort of American social contract. You think of implicit social contracts that are signed within families with regard to like expectations of what is or shouldn't be done. Social contracts that exist in the context of neighborhoods, municipalities, states. And so I wanted a, a sort of pseudo document, if you will, or statement or motto or mission statement that would reflect the social contract that I wanted my students to be signatories to. And and so we came up with, you know, I came up with this motto, read critically, write consciously, speak clearly, tell your truth. And that was on a board at the beginning of my first year of teaching. And I had those four things written down. And the first thing I did when I started class was I was like, you know, to be a student in this class, you are saying that you are going to abide by and reach toward these goals because these goals represent the sort of culture that we are seeking to create in this classroom. And these represent the sort of like aspirational direction that each of us are moving toward, right? And that, that again, that to read critically, write consciously, speak clearly and tell your truth is not a, you don't simply cross a threshold and then you are like, you do those things. Those are things that you have to be proactive in doing and practicing every day. And, and these are habits that one develops. And in many ways, it's not simply learning to do these things, but it's unlearning to do other things that might not be aligned with, with that. So like, what does it mean to be, you know, a 15 year old to who has been sort of, you know, either explicitly or implicitly told that their voice uh, doesn't matter or that what it means to be a student is to be quiet and to be a passive recipient of, of someone else's knowledge or ideas. And instead to have a teacher come in and say, actually, I want you to, you know, when you have something to say, you should say it when you obviously we're always going to be respectful and kind and empathic. But if you disagree with something that I say as a teacher, you shouldn't feel as if you can't say something because that is not aligned with the sort of intellectual community that we're seeking to create in this classroom. Like I believe deeply in the fact that I am I'm a partner in my students academic and intellectual journey more so than I am someone like bestowing things onto them and that I've, I've learned as much from my students and my students, I would hope have learned as much from one another about themselves, about the world, about the subjects we're engaging in as they have myself. And so I think that that's to say that that demands a sort of recalibration of what, you know, a young person may have understood education to be. And so having this at the front of the classroom, having their signatures on it and having it be the first thing they see every day is, is hopefully a reminder to them to sort of aspire toward those four core principles that, that are the sort of driving force of, of the work that we do in our class. Thanks for sharing that powerful part of your pedagogy. This is the part of the show where we each get to recommend something, and I would like to recommend that people pick up your book. And I wanted to actually read just one of the I hate calling them blurbs. That's what are they called? <laughs> Testimonials. Is that, is that a better word? On that's, the, a very, that's a nicer way to put it. <laughs> yes. And I, I actually, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce her last name. Elizabeth Acevedo, maybe? Is that Acevedo, yes. Okay. 
She says, Counting Descent is a tightly woven collection of poems whose pages act like an invitation. The invitation is intimate and generous and also a challenge. Are you up to asking what is blackness? What is black joy? How is black life loved and lived? To whom do we look to for answers? This invitation is not a narrow street or a shallow lake, but to a vast exploration of life, and you're invited. And that's exactly why I think people should pick up your book and and have a read and be challenged and be filled with joy and sorrow along with you. It's just a beautiful work. Thank you so much. The other quick thing I wanted to recommend is a series of videos that I came across the last couple of weeks from the learning scientists, and they came out with six strategies for effective learning. And these are videos that could be watched by students or teachers. And their whole aim with their site is to motivate students to study, to increase the use of effective study and teaching strategies that are backed by research and to decrease negative views of testing. And I've come across their work before, but this was the first time I saw these videos. They were funded by a grant, and I just think they're wonderful to watch and potentially even to use in one's own teaching to help our students be able to do this. It's great for teachers and students, and I recommend people go and check them out. What do you have to recommend today, Clint? I would recommend for for the people who are interested in Again, sort of reorienting our understanding of history, uh, Ronald Takaki's A Different Mirror, which is a sort of seminal text in American history for me. Very similar for, for those who may have heard of or read Howard Zinn's A People's History, but in, in some ways I think is potentially more comprehensive and illuminates the stories of, of things that aren't as fleshed out in um, Howard Zinn's book. Uh, I'd also say reading Ira Katz Nelson's book, who's a Columbia historian, uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. That book, I think, is incredibly important in understanding the ways in which we sort of misunderstand the purpose of affirmative action and in the ways in which we fail to recognize how the the very nature of the contemporary white middle class in this country was itself an act of affirmative action that was subsidized through the federal government, through the GI Bill, Social Security, minimum wage protection, mortgage opportunities, and, and the myriad of things that created the intergenerational wealth and social bedrock upon which this country in its contemporary context was founded and how the, many of those things that are the very things that created the contemporary middle class weren't given to black people when those bills were signed. And so I think that that's an important text to help us understand how uh, racial inequality exists in the sort of context that it does in this moment. I would also say that an important book to read would be American Apartheid. It's a little bit old and a little bit outdated, but I think is another seminal text in understanding the ways in which housing segregation in this country has shaped the way in which inequality, um, specifically along lines of race, has, has come to manifest itself and how black people for, for decades and decades in the 20th century were prevented from buying homes and developing the assets that, that one gains from, from owning a home because uh, they either were denied a loan outright or denied a loan until, uh, because they were aspiring to uh, purchase a, a home in a certain neighborhood. So I think all of those, those texts are important to understanding inequality and, and pushing back against the sort of false pathologies of, of why certain communities and, and thus why certain students and certain schools are experiencing uh, maybe some of the, the gaps that we're experiencing today. 
I'll be candid with you, Clint. I read Howard Zen's People's History a couple years ago, and I feel like I still haven't recovered. <laughs> it just, it completely, oh my gosh, I just felt that my whole education had been a lie and that it scared me so much in the sense I just still don't know what to do with everything it uncovered in me. But I suppose that doesn't mean we shouldn't read things like that. It just means we have to keep going <laughs> and exactly. continue to ask questions. There is no easy answer to any of this, but just the struggle of, of you know, not, not ever giving up, I guess, but uh, you scare me with your description of a different mirror, but also intrigue me at the same time, because I know it's just important work for all of us to be studying and be preparing ourselves for what is in store. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It really, truly is an honor to talk to you. And I'm just excited to see what's next for you. I wish you the best as you finish your dissertation. And I'm just looking forward to following your work. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks once again to Clint Smith for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to make comments on today's episode or access all of the links to the things that we talked about, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 141. And if you'd like to avoid having to remember to go look at the show notes to see the resources that are mentioned on each episode, you can receive just a single email each week with those show notes along with an article about teaching or productivity by me. And you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to access today's show notes, those will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 141. Thanks to Clint for challenging us today, for inspiring us, and for such wonderful resources there at the end. I, I really am going to look forward to diving into some of those. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, if you have ideas for the show, topics, or future guests, you can get in touch with me at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.